What up? What is up? What is up? How are we doing, Salt Company? So is it is it two straight days or three straight days? Just two straight days. <laughs> D Dylan and I are from Louisiana, so so we're a little slow. We'll probably go with Hayden's answer. I think it's three straight days. <laughs> seven. I wish. That would be crazy. I don't even know if we'd be friends after seven days. Um, <laughs> no, we would. We would. We would. We would. It's cool. It's cool. Um, well, if it's your first time to Salt Company tonight, welcome. Um, super glad that you're here. I know that it can be like awkward and weird walking into a new space where there's a bunch of new faces and you kind of think that like everybody else knows each other. That's not the case. Like I'm looking at half this room and I feel like I haven't even met half of you. So I would love to meet you afterwards. And I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are here. So like, thanks for mustering up the courage to come into a new space tonight. Like really grateful you're here. Also, if you were here last week and you're back, <laughs> Special thanks, because it was like 280 degrees in this room last week. Was it not so hot? It feels like fall is here. Today's weather was insane in the membrane. I loved it. Well, okay, if you, if you met me before, you know me decently well. You know, like, I like to cut up. I like, I like to joke a bunch. And, and tonight, guys, like, there's not going to be a ton of that. Like, what, what we're talking about tonight is actually a, a pretty heavy topic. And so I just want to, like acknowledge that on the front end and just encourage you like, hey, buckle up with me. We are going for a ride and like, and that's okay. We, we talk about very important things here at Salkame, very heavy, real things. And so um, just know that's where we're going. But here's the question I got for you. Has anybody here ever gotten something wrong before? Okay, sweet. I'm not the only one. About half of you have. Um, but, what, but what happens when we, when we get something wrong, right? Typically it, it involves us seeking some sort of forgiveness afterwards, right? Especially if it has to do with, with like relationships. Or like if I get something wrong, therefore like I wrong somebody, I have to seek forgiveness, right? I have to ask for forgiveness. But one thing that has really come to my attention recently is like what happens when I get forgiveness wrong? Like that's kind of a weird thing, right? Like it's one thing to like, you get something wrong and you got to ask for forgiveness, but what if the thing that you get wrong is forgiveness in and of itself? Like, that's hard. Let me tell you a story. Whenever I was in college, there was a close friend of mine, and we had an incident that happened between us, and, and we, we weren't able to, to work it out. And we decided basically, like, hey, we're both going to go our, our separate ways. We weren't able to resolve it. And so a few months go by and there was still just this like this unsettled issue going on in my heart between me and this person. And in my head, I was like, I know what I need to do, right? Like as a Christian, I know that like Jesus calls me to forgive. Like that's, that's, what, I, that's what I need to do. And so, you know what I said in my head was like, okay, I forgive you. And you've probably been there you know what it's like. Like you did exactly what I did in a moment in which you basically like forgave and forgot or forgive and forget. Or you just say like, I'm gonna forgive him. I'm just gonna try to pretend that like whatever happened didn't actually happen. I'm just gonna move on. Just like, like it never even happened. Well, how do you think that worked out for me? Right, like it didn't. Um, because the reality is we can't just forgive and forget. And if we try to forgive and forget, 
what we're actually doing is, is we're like shortening what forgiveness actually is. Because if we just forget about the thing that happened, then what even is forgiveness? Like what are we actually forgiving? There's like nothing to actually forgive that person for. But if we say, I forgive you, but then nothing else happens, then it just remains unresolved, okay? And so if you're confused, like play this out with me, right? Say you're in the library, you're studying with a friend. You got your laptop out. They got their laptop out. They also have this big, huge cup of coffee and they're kind of joking around. All of a sudden they knock over that coffee and it goes all over your laptop. Oof, no bueno, right? Your laptop is broken, okay? It's not good, it's a major bummer, but, but then they look at you and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, let me buy you a new one. Okay, there's kind of two things you can do in that scenario. The first is like, hey, don't worry about it. Like, I know it's an accident. Look, I forgive you. Or you can say, yeah, buy me a new laptop. Like, I'm out of Mac right now. But here's the thing. If you just say, hey, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. And you don't go get another Mac, then there's still this unresolved issue because you used to have a laptop and now you don't. So forgiveness can't just be saying something and then not dealing with the actual debt. But here's another way that we get forgiveness wrong. You see, back to me and that friend that I had, a few years go by and that individual actually approached me and told me something essentially like this, like, hey, Tim, I actually thought about what happened and listen, that was totally my fault. I was way wrong and out of line and look, I'm sorry. And guys, when they said that, like that did all kind of crazy things to my heart. Because when that person approached me and told me that, it was like, okay, wow. Now I actually forgive you because I heard that I was right. And they basically pay me back by telling me that I was right. but. That's not forgiveness either, is it? All right, track with me again, right? Say, say you have student loans out. A lot of you probably do have student, student loans. Say you, you took out $5,000 of student loans, right? After college, you go, you're working hard, and you begin to pay it back. And you pay back every single dollar. And the last dollar you pay to that loan company, as soon as you pay it, you get an email. And you open up the email, and it says, hey, congratulations, your student loans are forgiven. You would be like, what the crap? Like, no, who, you, I pay those back. You don't get to forgive me for that. Like, that. like, that's not how it works. That's restitution. Like, that's not forgiveness. But we do this all the time, don't we? We say, hey, hey I'll, I'll forgive. I'll forgive you once you pay me back. Then we can be okay. See, we get forgiveness wrong. And guys, it's one thing that if we get forgiveness wrong when we're dealing with our relationships with one another, but what happens when this actually begins to leak in the way that we view God? Our understanding of who God is, how God forgives us. What if God forgave like you did? Or what if you think that God is forgiving you the way that some other people have forgiven you in your life? What does that leave you with? Right, chances are something far short of the forgiveness that God actually offers you. And I wholeheartedly believe that if we get forgiveness wrong, then we are gonna be dealing with a massive 
tragedy. Because guys, forgiveness, it's foundational to the Christian faith. So the question is, if it, if it isn't like forgive and forget, but it's also not like forgive for a fee, how does Jesus forgive us? That's where we're going tonight. Like, how does Jesus forgive? How is God's forgiveness different than ours? So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 23. That's where we're going to be tonight. Same book we were in last week. If you don't have a Bible, if you look on the floor underneath your chair, your neighbor's chair, there should be a blue one on the ground. Um, I don't have the page number again. I failed. But if someone knows the page number, maybe like shout it out for the rest of us. And if you don't own a Bible, guys, as always, like those are ours for you. You can take it. You can have it. You can read it, write your name in it. Mark it up. No big deal. It is yours. So we're in Luke 23, all right? And we're at a pretty crucial point in Jesus' life. So up to this point, guys, Jesus, he has, he's been born of Mary the Virgin, okay? And here's what happened is, is an angel, God sent an angel named Gabriel to go to this woman, this, this really nobody, and he tells her, hey, you are going to have a son. And he is going to be the Messiah, the son of God, the savior of the world, right? And that actually happened. Like Mary was a virgin and she gave birth to Jesus, the son of God. And it was a complete miracle of God. It was all the work of God. And so Jesus, at this point in Luke, has lived 30, just over 30 years of his life, perfectly obedient to God, okay? Now, just think about that for a second, right? Like there wasn't a moment in Jesus's life to where he didn't love God perfectly or love one another, like other people perfectly, right? He was absolutely perfect. So just even as a kid, right? Imagine that, you know what kids are like. Like Jesus had half siblings, like Mary would end up getting married to Joseph and, and Jesus had half brothers. So like picture this, right? Like Jesus is in the house, you know, the, the kids are fighting. Mary walks in the back room and there's like James, Jesus' half-brother, and, and they all stop fighting when mom walks in. And then James goes, and he points and he's at, at Jesus like every other kid does, and goes, he did it. He started it. And then Mary's like, no, James. He's God. He's perfect. Right? Like, what would that have been? That is just crazy, okay? But Jesus, right, he, he begins his ministry, and he's doing all these incredible things, right? He does countless miracles and healings. First one he did was he turned water to wine. Then one day he's, he's out there with crowds of thousands and thousands of people, and he basically feeds like all these people with, with a Lunchable, right? Just a few fish sticks and a few loaves of bread. And it's, it's this incredible miracle, and there's a ton of leftovers. Then there's times where he's like cleansing people from their diseases. There's blind people who can't see who he is allowing to see. He's teaching with great authority. He's healing lepers. He even raised two people from the dead. And in all this, he's revealing the fact that he is both fully man and at the same time fully God, which is a really hard thing for you and I with our puny size, like created brains that God has given us to like wrap our minds around and understand. Like, like you and I, this side of heaven, we are never going to understand God fully. And listen, that's okay. Like, I take good confidence in knowing that, hey, God is so much bigger than, than me and his thoughts and his ways are so much higher. And so like, if you're new to Christianity or, or you're like checking, like, hey, that's okay. Nobody here has all the answers. So just know that. But if you're here last week, right, we talked about this man named, named Zacchaeus who Jesus had an encounter with in this, this city called Jericho. 
All right, we won't talk about that much, but after they left Jericho, remember where Jesus and his disciples are heading, right? They were going to Jerusalem. And here's the thing. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells them this, that, hey, whenever we get to Jerusalem, I am going to die. That I'm going to be murdered. And it's not because I'm not in control of my life. Like, I'm actually willingly going to lay my life down. And so here's what happens. Jesus and his disciples, right, they get to Jerusalem, where Jesus would live his last few days on earth with them. And here's what happens. He's betrayed by one of his best friends. He's turned over and arrested as if he's a criminal. He's unjustly put on trial And then it leads up to this point to where ultimately he's standing before the governor, one of the governors of Rome named Pilate. And Pilate brings Jesus in front of the crowd and he takes this other man who is a prisoner, who's who's a wicked murderer named Barabbas. And if you grew up in church, you probably know the story, right? He says, I'm going to release one. Which one do you want? And what did they choose? Barabbas. Give us Barabbas, the murderer. Let him go. And so Barabbas, the murderer, is released to go free while Jesus is sentenced to death. And that's where we're picking up in our text tonight. And it is a heavy text in Luke chapter 23, verse It says two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Okay, there's a few things that we need to understand and unpack to get what's going on here. So for those of you who are like kind of nerds about the Bible, um, I, I want you to just write down Isaiah 53. Like, just make a note of that. If you're a note taker, like, like write that down, Isaiah 53. Isaiah is an Old Testament book, and it's one of the major prophets. And for those of you who are, like, skeptical to Christianity, here's the reality. Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before Jesus would be born. And it predicted this exact event. It predicted his crucifixion that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come as an innocent man and that he would be killed with transgressors, that he would be killed next to lawbreakers. That's, that's when we read in, in verse 32 that like criminals were crucified next to him. That means they were lawbreakers, that they were transgressors. So Jesus here in Luke 23 is fulfilling a prophecy that was written in God's word, guys, 700 years before Jesus even stepped foot on earth. It's incredible. And we have copies of this, actually. I don't even plan on saying this, but when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you don't know what that is, like if, if this is for like the skeptic out there, like we have copies that date back to 150 years before Jesus stepped foot on earth. And that was like one of the greatest discoveries of the last century. So look into that if you want. But one thing we can't just skip over here is, is, like, is like the crucifixion. Like, like what is crucifixion? Okay. Um, chances are, if, you, if you've been around church, if you've grown up in church, like you likely might have an idea of what crucifixion is. But some of you, like maybe this is your first time 
ever at something like this? And you're like, hey, what even is crucifixion? Like, why do I see crosses on churches? Like, what is all that about? Here's what crucifixion is. And I told you, like, tonight was going to be heavy. And so just bear with me. But crucifixion was the ultimate form of execution in the ancient days that the Roman government perfected. And here was the goal. To bring torture to its extreme while also bringing shame to its extreme. And it was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals, like the worst of the worst. And so I'm just going to read this for you really quick. And it's going to be graphic. And, and that's the point. And so if you're having a hard time focusing, like I would just encourage you, like if you're ADD like me, like, like close your eyes and just actually picture what is happening here as we try to put ourselves in the story and understand what is going on in this context, okay? Here's what it says. The victim of crucifixion was first severely scourged or beaten, an ordeal that was life-threatening by itself. Then he was forced to carry the large wooden crossbeam to the site of the crucifixion. Bearing this load was not only extremely painful after the beating, but it added a measure of shame as the victim was carrying the instrument of his own torture and death. It was like digging one's own grave. When the victim arrived at the place of crucifixion, he would be stripped naked to further shame him. Then he would be forced to stretch out his arms on the crossbeam where they were nailed in place. The nails, typically a half inch in diameter, were hammered through the wrist, not the palms, which kept the nails from pulling through the hand. The placement of the nails in the wrist also caused excruciating pain as the nails pressed on large nerves running through the hands. The crossbeam would then be hoisted up and fastened to an upright piece that would normally remain standing between crucifixions. After fastening the crossbeam, the executioners would nail the victim's feet to the cross as well. Normally, one foot on top of the other, nailed through the middle arch of each foot with the knees slightly bent. Again, the primary purpose of the nails was to inflict pain. Once the victim was fastened to the cross, all his weight was supported by three nails which would cause pain to shoot throughout the body. The victim's arms were stretched out in such a way as to cause cramping and paralysis in the chest muscles, making it impossible to breathe unless some of the weight was borne by the feet. In order to take a breath, the victim had to push up with his feet and in addition to enduring excruciating pain caused by the nail in his feet, the victim's raw back would rub against the rough upright beam of the cross. After taking a breath and in order to relieve some of the pain in his feet, the victim would begin to slump down again. This action put more weight on his wrist and again rubbed his back against the cross. However, the victim could not breathe in this lower position. So before long, the torturous process would begin again. In order to breathe and to relieve some of the pain caused by the wrist nails, the victim would have to put more weight on the nail in his feet and push up. 
Then in order to relieve some of the pain caused by the nail, he would have to put more weight on the nails in his wrist and slump down. In either position, the pain was intense. Crucifixion usually led to a slow, torturous death. Some victims lasted as long as four days on a cross. Four days. Imagine that. 96 hours, day and night, up and down. Death was ultimately by asphyxiation, which is another word for suffocating to death, as the victim lost the strength to continue pushing up on his feet in order to take a breath. Guys, that is what Jesus is doing as we look at this passage. The king of the universe, the creator of all things, the eternal son of God became a man, like took on flesh and became a human being and chose to go through this. Like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Well, as we look at Jesus' last moments before he died, I believe there are three truths that we can learn from this text. Out of the most important truths maybe we could ever know. Now remember, guys, when you are getting crucified, every breath matters. And it takes a breath to speak. And so as these final words are about to come out of Jesus' mouth and he speaks them from the cross, I think what he says really matters, and I think we should lean in to what Jesus has to say. Look at verse 34. And Jesus said, get this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the, of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, there was also an inscription over him. It said, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Guys, can you believe this? Right, the, the perfect son of God, the only person who's ever walked this earth and actually been innocent. Like he loved God perfectly and he loved others perfectly. And what did humanity do? We mocked him. We spat on him. We scorned him. We scoffed at him. We killed him. This was the most unjust and wicked thing that has ever happened, ever. But you know what? It's not just these wicked people who did this in this text. Like we are also guilty as well. Here's the first truth that we need to understand tonight is that we have a sin issue. If you're a note taker, maybe you can write that one down. We have a sin issue, guys. You and I and every person who has ever lived has a sin issue. If you do not know what sin is, a sin is when we rebel against God and his ways and his laws and his standards. And look, we all have a sin issue. 
Because every one of us, and we know this because we've all feel rotten inside at times. Like we've all done things that have brought shame in our life. We've all done things that we know we shouldn't have done. And we often spend our lives trying to be better than the people next to us, trying to pretend that we have it all together, trying to do really good things so that God will be happy with you. And all that is a result of us knowing that we have a sin issue, that we are sinful. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, this isn't like Tim's opinion or your opinion. Like, like this is God's word. And it doesn't just say some of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and his standard. No, it is not that. It is all. Not just these wicked people in this text who are hurling insults at Jesus and killing him. No, it is you and I as well. And here's the deal. Because of our sin, here's the second truth. We deserve death and eternal punishment. Every one of us, no exception. We deserve to die as a penalty for our sin against God. Here's what God's word says in Romans 6. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Are you guys know what a wage is, right? A wage is, is what you earn, okay? This life here on earth, it's not an unpaid internship. Like we're gonna get paid for the things that happen here. And here's what Romans 6 is saying, is that the cost of our sin against an eternal, perfect God is death and eternal punishment. That's what we deserve. We deserve to die. We deserve to die for that website we visited on Sunday. We deserve to die for that test that we cheated on on Monday. We deserve to, to die for the gossip that we told on Tuesday. We deserve to die for having an just self-righteous attitude as I even walked in these doors tonight. Like we deserve to die from our sin against a holy, perfect God. And maybe you're wondering like, Tim, that seems extreme. Like what? How, how can God be, be good and fair and punish us for eternity for our, for our sin against him? Like, and the problem with that kind of thinking, if that is your response, and for a while it was my response, I had the same question, is actually it stems from, from a false idea that we're better than we actually are and God's a lot smaller and less holy than, we actually, than he actually is. Let me explain to you like this. Dylan, who was given announcements earlier, he has, he has a dog. I didn't tell you I was gonna tell, say this, Dylan, but Dylan has a dog. His dog's named Cooper, or he had a dog. His dog actually passed. But, but I'm, still gonna use, I'm still gonna use Cooper as an example. Okay, so, so say, too soon, Dylan says. Say Dylan's walking Cooper before his dog passed. And... I see Cooper one day, and I go up to Cooper, and I punch Cooper right in the face, right? And I just punch Cooper in the face. Why are you all laughing at that? <laughs> see, we're all sinful. <laughs> What's going to happen to me? Right? Cooper's probably going to want to try to bite my hand. Dylan's probably going to want to punch me in the face, <laughs> right? But, like, am I going to go to jail for that? Like, what are the consequences going to be? Probably not, no. But say instead of punching Cooper in the face, I swing a little higher and I punch Dylan in the face. Okay, now what's gonna happen? Well, we're probably throwing down. And listen, I could go to jail for that. Like you can't just go punch somebody in the face. That's attempted battle. You can't just go assault a human. If you go punch a human in the face, like there's, there's severe consequences for that. Like you might have some community service or some jail time. But say instead of punching Dylan in the face, I go across the big pond, 
of the Atlantic. I go into England, get into Buckingham Palace, and I go punch the Queen of England in the face, right? Okay, what is going to happen to me? I I heard someone say, you're done. (laughs) I'm going to be shot on the spot or I'm going to be locked up for high treason, right? That makes sense to us. Why? Because the greater the authority that we rebel against, guys, the greater the consequences. So, So track with me, right? How much more to not rebel and give the finger to a mere earthly king or queen, but to do that to the creator of the universe, the one who is eternal and perfect and holy and given us everything. How much more to say, screw you, God. I want to do what I want to do. And every single one of us have done that. That brings major consequences. Our sin is an incredible debt that we cannot pay. And we stand condemned before God because of it. But here's the last truth that we need to see in this text is that Jesus offers forgiveness and mercy. That's what I need. We're going to see this as he encounters one of the criminals who's being crucified next to him. Look back with me at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Like, if you're really God, save yourself and save us too. But the other, verse 40, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. He's actually innocent. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guys, what just happened? You got these two criminals, both next to Jesus, both about to physically die. Both because of their sin, guilty before God and deserving of eternal punishment. One of them, their response is the same as everybody else that we've read. They spat on the cross, they mocked Jesus. Are you actually the Son of God? Save yourself. His response is the same as everybody else's. Everybody else except the other criminal. Look at his response. He looks at the other criminal and says, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And listen, for us, like this is actually justice. We're getting the due reward for the crimes that we committed. This is what we deserve. But this man, Jesus, he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. And then he looks at the bloody son of God hanging on the cross and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And look at Jesus' sweet words to this criminal. Verse 43, he looks at him and says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, what just happened, guys? Jesus just offered this guy, the last guy you'd expect, 
a criminal and thug. Jesus looks at him and he gives him forgiveness. And he promises him eternal life. And he looks at him and he says, have mercy. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in heaven. How sweet of Jesus. Right? This guy does not deserve this. Nobody deserves this. This guy had lived his entire life doing whatever he wanted. No regard for God. But Jesus, the innocent one, looks at him and gives him mercy and promises him eternal life. What did this guy do? Like, like what do we need to understand from this guy's response to Jesus? I think there's two things that we see in this text. The first is this. This criminal acknowledged that he was broken and he acknowledged that Jesus was the answer. This criminal confesses that he's guilty, but he trusts in the innocent savior hanging on the cross. He looked to Jesus in faith and what happened? Jesus met him with forgiveness and mercy and promises him eternal life. How incredible is that? That those who recognize that they're broken that they're condemned before God, that they cannot do anything to earn God's approval and they, they actually deserve condemnation, but they look to Jesus in faith, God promises eternal life. Like that's not just true of that criminal, that's also true of you and true of me. And it's absolutely amazing, but there's a problem with all this. What about justice? You remember a few years ago with George Floyd? I'm sure you do. Right, we saw what happened, we watched those videos. And all of us were like, where is justice in this? Like, the guys who murdered him, they deserve to pay. What about the consequences for them? Where is justice? We want justice. You see, this man who Jesus promises paradise, he's a criminal. But not just against earthly Roman authorities, but against an eternal, holy perfect God. And because God is just, how can Jesus look at this man and give him eternal life? Right, that's the question. Or how can Jesus look at you and I and give us eternal life and forgive us of our sins? How can God be just and just overlook our sins and brush them under the rug right here and pretend it's not a big deal? Track with me. If I'm a judge, right, and a mass murderer comes into my courtroom, right? And they've killed tons of people. And they say, hey, Tim, here's all the people I killed, how I killed them, why I killed them. But look, Tim, I'm sorry. And all the evidence is there. It's like this, this, this mass murderer is clearly guilty. And I look at him and I say, hey, you know what? Dude, I forgive you. You can go. And I let this mass murderer out on the streets, right? How long am I gonna keep my job? Not very long, right? Why is that? Because I'd be a crappy judge. I wouldn't actually be executing justice, but I'd be corrupt. You see, God is just. He is a perfect, holy, and just God. So how can he forgive this man's sins and how can he forgive you and I sins? Here's the answer. This is the beauty of the gospel. Is that God in his perfect love and mercy actually sent his son Jesus to die 
and die on the cross for our sins. Look on the screens with me at Isaiah 53. Again, guys, this was written 700 years before Jesus even stepped foot on earth. And this is referring to Jesus. Look at what it says. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. Transgressions is like us breaking the law, us breaking God's law. What happened to Jesus' hands and feet? They were pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Okay, well, that's probably a weird word to you. It means sin. It's another, another word for sin. Upon him, upon Jesus, was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. Peace with God. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of us, every single one of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. We've done our own thing. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity or sins of us all. Saul Company, our greatest need in life is to be forgiven of our sins. That is this criminal's greatest need. That is my greatest need. And that is your greatest need. It is not money. It is not a career. It is not relationships. It is not success. You need forgiveness from your sins. And you, like this criminal on the cross, are totally unable to do anything to save yourself. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And God's standard is perfection. But get this. Rather than let us aimlessly try to work our way back up to God, which you and I could never do, we may try to do that through, through, through going to church. Maybe even you came to Salt Company tonight thinking that, hey, God will love me more if I, if I go to this, this Bible study thing, or God will love me more if I go to campus group, or God will love me more if, I, if I'm kind to people around me. Like You cannot do anything to make God love you more. His standard is so much higher than whatever you've created in your head. The wages of sin is death. So rather than let us aimlessly work up to God, which we can never do, God in his love sent Jesus, the eternal son of God, to go live the life that you were required to live. Live the life that I'm required to live. Live the life that this criminal is required to live, a perfect, blameless life. And Jesus did it. He obeyed God perfectly, all the way to the point to where he died on the cross. And on the cross, what Isaiah 53 tells us, is that our sins, past, present, and future, were laid on Jesus, and God treated Jesus as if he committed those sins. It wasn't just the Roman soldiers killing Jesus. Yes, they physically killed him, but meanwhile, the wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus the Son so that it wouldn't have to be poured out on us for eternity. That is the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's plan. This was God's plan to give forgiveness to broken, messy, sinful people like you and me so that we could have life, so that we could actually have peace with him and that we could actually have eternal life. And it cost him something. So I want you to notice the criminal one more time. All right, because Jesus 
promises him that today he will be with him in paradise. He knew two things. I'm sinful, Jesus. I am broken. I can do nothing. I deserve condemnation, but Jesus, you're the answer. You are Lord. You are King. And your work on the cross is enough. And he trusted in Jesus. And he found hope and eternal life in Jesus and a relationship with God, with Jesus. And that can be the same for you tonight. Here's how the Bible puts it in Ephesians 2. Again, these aren't my words. Like, this is the word of God. I don't get to say how we have eternal life. No human does. Only God can. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Just look at that for a second. For by grace, what is the grace? It's Jesus' work on the cross. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and he died the death that we deserve. We did not deserve that. He paid a debt that we owe that we could not pay. By grace, we are saved. And how do we receive it, guys? Is it through trying to be a good person? Is it through trying to clean yourself up? Through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You cannot do anything. Maybe you've walked in here tonight, striving your whole life, just trying to be good enough so that God will be pleased with you. The best thing you could ever realize and understand is what this thief realized, is that he deserved condemnation and that he is guilty before God, but that Jesus is the answer. So will you trust him tonight? It's that simple. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this just incredible deathbed conversion. Really, the only one listed in Scripture where this man is about to enter eternity under your wrath and condemnation, and yet you had mercy on him. Not because of anything that was special about him, but because you're a loving, good God. Jesus, it makes no sense why you would give your life for me. I don't even understand how wicked that I am, but I know that I'm wicked. Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts tonight and that this room would be filled with a humble group of men and women who recognize that they don't have it all together. That we would stop striving to pretend to perform as if we could earn your grace. Lord, we cannot but we thank you for Jesus who you sent to make a way for us to have forgiveness, to make a way for us not only to just be forgiven of our sins and have peace with you, but to be a part of your family, to have purpose now in life, to glorify you, to tell others about this incredible good news that Jesus has died and rose from the grave and he lives. And those who look to him and trust in him can have life too that when Jesus was on the cross and his last words were that it is finished, he actually meant it. The work's been paid. Would the cross, Father, remain the most beautiful thing to us? That horrific, torturous device be so beautiful to us because that's 
how you brought us to yourself. Praise you, God. We love you in Jesus' name.